Letters to Dead People, a collection of letters written from the future to some of the most interesting people in history, with questions and the occasional suggestion about their lives. This is Politics and Humanities, Volume 1. Letter to His Royal Highness Henry VIII, Hampton Court, near London, England. Targeted delivery date, December 1535. Uh, Your Royal Highness, forgive me for diving in, so to speak, but I wanted to make a suggestion regarding your dissolution of the monasteries. Now, as I understand it, your chapters have been running around, closing down all the churches, bringing back all the silver and gold, really for the dual aims of bolstering your own finances, of course, as well as reducing the church's power and influence. So, the proposal I wanted to make is that I believe you're missing a great opportunity regarding this real estate. Currently, your men are just smashing down the walls, breaking the windows, setting fire to everything, including the wooden pews. What you might not appreciate, however, is the tremendous increase in value of properties such as these for assisted living retirement homes. In the 21st century, there's an immense demand for such properties. Chastely modernised, of course, with comfortable rooms for people to live out their old age. They're publicised with pictures of luxurious swimming pools uh, that nobody in reality actually uses, happy chatting groups of old folk hired from acting agencies with actors who've seen better days themselves, and in-house bistros serving homemade fare, uh, which turns out to mean a choice between soggy fish and chips and microwave chilli con carne. However, such residences have been snapped up faster than you could say Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the advantage to you is this. In my time, most people approaching retirement age have to actually surrender their current home to pay for their place in a retirement property. With the average age of the population steadily increasing, the effective price they pay naturally diminishes. In your era, however, the average lifespan is significantly lower. You should therefore be able to get a much larger churn on occupancy and so increase your financial rewards. And look, if swimming pools and bistros aren't your thing, maybe include something like armchair jousting, for instance. Or food-wise, egret and swan roast dinners, if that takes your fancy. It's just an idea. I mean, chew it over with your Chancellor, Thomas Cromwell, and let me know via letter what you think. And if you like it, I'll prepare some plans for you to mull over. Oh, by the way, as well, maybe discuss the plans with Anne Boleyn. It'll give her a head start on ideas for the decor, etc. Sincerely, your humble servant, Timothy Shift. Letter to Nettie Honeyball, care of the British Ladies Football Club, Crouch End, London, United Kingdom. Targeted delivery date, 24th of March, 1895. Dear Nettie, first commiserations on losing the inaugural match yesterday of the newly minted British Ladies Football Club. Going down 7-1 to the north. You can't win them all as they, well, I'll come to say anyway. Second, uh, I hope you don't mind me calling you Nettie, since I'm aware that that's probably not your real name. In that regard, we've got something in common, since I'll come clean and admit that my name isn't Terence Shift either. For you, I gather, the name has proved a useful pseudonym to deflect the criticism and trolling you correctly anticipated on receiving, from having the audacity to encourage women to play association football. So determined were you that you founded the club yourself along with Lady Florence Dixie, and are its de facto first captain. I suspect that the crowd attendance at that first match 
estimated at over 10,000, may have surprised and delighted you. Perhaps not so good is the heckling and general derision by most of the press. It appears that the art of insulting newspaper headlines is indeed alive and well in 1895, with your young player Daisy Allen being described as a small four-foot goblin. Unseemly, they also claimed, due to the fact that the team didn't actually wear corsets and played in standard men's boots without high heels. Mind you, you did still wear bonnets, of course, and the play would be stopped just in case one became dislodged so it could be reattached. Bizarre, really, how the press particularly think that women heading a football will lead to the total moral breakdown of society. Mind you, hopefully you've already started to see that your approach to more appropriate attire is bleeding into the wider Victorian dress reform movement, and indeed suffrage in general. Of course, you probably already suspect some of the reasons behind this negativity. Beyond just the sexism that you constantly endure, I think the men are just basically jealous you can attract such crowds on a shoestring budget. The bad news for them is the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. And although the path to broader women's involvement in football definitely doesn't run smooth, there'll be no stopping it. A century or so may need to pass, which I know may sound a bit depressing, but its coming of age in the early 21st century leads directly back to you and the British Ladies Football Club. I'll take a punt, actually, on what I think your real name is. Many believe it might be Mary Hudson, or Nellie Hudson, or, or even Phoebe Smith. But I'm going to go out on the wing and say that I think your name is Jesse Smith. If so, don't worry, it'll be our secret. You can destroy this letter so that you can remain anonymous as, for as long as you feel you need to. I mean, I'd understand why. You can probably imagine the conversation down the Maynard Arms in Crouch End if news of this letter leaked out. Eh, did you know Nettie Honeyball plays football? And also, she got a letter from a time traveller from over a hundred years in the future. Good Lord, that's astonishing. Plays football, you say? She's a woman? I'm astounded. You're probably right. Best destroy the letter. Uh, finally, I hope you enjoy your upcoming move to West Ham with your husband, Fred Smith. West Ham, eh? I think you're going to like it. Yours sincerely, Timothy Shift. Letter to Jeremiah Dixon, care of Plymouth Dockyards, Plymouth, England. Targeted delivery date, September 1763. Dear Jeremiah, congratulations on the new job. That's some gig you managed to get yourself. It isn't uncommon throughout history for people to have to travel a bit to find employment. Usually it might be to the next town or even a prosperous city in the same country. But no, this letter should reach you just as you prepare to set sail for the American colonies. Philadelphia, no less as well, to survey and confirm the dividing line between parts of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware and Virginia. That's not bad for a lad who was born and raised in County Durham, the son of a coal miner. I suspect it was attending John Kipling's school at Barnard Castle that drove your interest in surveying and astronomy and enabled you to forge this great new career. Ironic, really, isn't it, that you should have been taught the skills that require such accurate vision at Barnard Castle, given its more modern reputation as a sanctuary for those with failing eyesight. Of course, 
You'll have your colleague Charles Mason with you on this endeavour. I'm sure you two bonded well on your recent trip to monitor the transit of Venus across the sun. In fact, that probably gave you the travel bug, given that it wasn't done in your back garden, between the potatoes and the sweet peas. Rather, you had to try and nip down to Sumatra in Indonesia to do it. Unfortunately, as often happens, you got attacked by a French man-of-war en route. And basically, the delay meant you had to haul up in the Cape of Good Hope, South Africa, and monitor the transit from there. I mean, travel delays are the worst, right? You're full of anticipation at arriving at your destination, and then someone throws a spanner in the works. These days, we moan like hell when there's a 30-minute delay on the M25 near London. So next time that happens, maybe I'll bite my tongue a bit, given what you've been through. I'd love to know how you're feeling, preparing for that voyage across the Atlantic. Trepidation? Excitement? A little fear, maybe? Things aren't exactly running smooth over there, are they, with a talk of a revolutionary war and everything? I'm sure you know as well as I do that things like boundaries can become so crucial in disputes and hostilities should they arise. I suspect, however, that you're both just trying to concentrate on the job at hand. You already know that the first part of the dividing line has been marked out with milestones. I have no idea why they felt they had to ship those milestones all the way from England. I mean, don't they have stone quarries over there? Anyway, you can start there and then move out along the agreed dividing lines. I think you and Charles are also alert to the fact that although you have some of the finest instruments from the British Royal Society, things often don't work quite as well in the field as they did in the lab. There's also that theory that such a large mass in the nearby mountains might throw off some of your measurements. I guess you'll only know for sure if you don't end up back at the same place you started when you trace your return route. Actually, you probably don't even know how long you'll be away. Four or five years, maybe. I wonder if you've thought about how you might use the proceeds of your trip. I mean, I think the bill is going to be like £3,500. I mean, that's a tidy sum in the 18th century. Always useful in later life, of course. However, perhaps you're also hoping that this Herculean task is remembered in more ways than simply financially. You know, maybe given a catchy name. I mean, I guess something like calling it the Mason-Dixon line would do, no? Anyway, good luck for your upcoming voyage. Yours sincerely, Timothy Shift. Oh, P.S., one thing that might give you some heart is to know that your exploits will actually be remembered in song. Sailing to Philadelphia by Mark Knopfler. You know, I think you'd like it. Letter to Boudicca. Watling Street, Britannia. Targeted delivery date, June 61 AD. Dear Boudicca, I have to admit this letter is a bit of a long shot for multiple reasons. Ignoring the literacy problems in the first century AD, your whereabouts are somewhat vague. Usually, if you write to someone famous, even if you just have the street name, you can guarantee delivery. I mean, for instance, Father Christmas gets most of his mail all the time and People only put the country for him. However, in your case, I can understand the postie might take issue. After all, Watling Street is 276 miles long, being the Roman road from Rutapia near the Kent coast, 
all the way up through Londinium, which of course is London today, to Viconium, which is what we call Shropshire now. The second reason for my concern is, and I don't quite know how to put this delicately, but do you actually exist? Well, as a unique person anyway. The descriptions we have of you and your exploits, well, they're all from the Roman side, and you know how the winners always like to rewrite history. The story goes that your followers would shout your name as they ran into battle. But then Boudicca is thought to derive from the Celtic word Buda, which just means victory. This doesn't seem an unreasonable thing for the horse to shout, whoever their leader was. Tacitus, the Roman historian, describes you as having a huge frame with a fierce aspect, a harsh voice as well as long red hair. Basically all aspects designed to distill loathing amongst the Roman readers about the barbarians. Well, since they really hadn't got that equality memo yet. They still thought women should be demure, obedient, well read of course, but not to interfere in those complicated subjects such as politics and business. However, I'm going to hope for success and assume you receive this. You really have shaken things up. After the brutal treatment you received following your husband's death, and after the Romans decided, well, basically to steal all of Norfolk, being unhappy with the half he left them in his will, your army has trounced the Romans' left and centre. Colchester ransacked. London burnt to the ground. St Albans flattened. I don't actually know whether it'll amuse you or alarm you to know that today there's a very fine statue of you guarding the entrance to London. Yes, the very same one you totally destroyed. Nobody quite seems to see the irony these days as they drive past it chatting on their mobile phones. However, all good things must come to an end. And so it has, with your defeat and the devastating loss of some 80,000 of your followers this year, somewhere near mile 226 on Watling Street. Today we call this road the A5, and there's a little chef restaurant nearby as a reminder of tragedies past, plus a few they produced themselves in recent times, to be honest. You managed to escape, but you must know your days are numbered. Now, if I've got this right, one source has reported that you might have chosen to be buried at a secret London location. Slightly unbelievably, this turns out on modern maps to be the exact spot which lies between platforms 9 and 10 of King's Cross Station. Well, all I can say is it's got to get super crowded in there soon. Are you any good at Quidditch? Your sincerely, Timothy Shift.